0: Hey everyone, this is Leela Sinha. Welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast version two. This is where we talk about business, leadership, ethics, community, and the way it all fits together. I'm glad you're here. Hi everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot. This is another one of our bonus special interview episodes. So sit down, buckle in for a little bit longer episode. As most of you know, most episodes are about five to 20 minutes, and this one's probably going to run an hour. So get comfortable, get some coffee. I have an amazing guest with us today. I have Sarah Rhiannon. Um, She is someone I have known. She is someone I have worked with as a client. And that is to say, I have been the client. And she is a hypnotist and most recently certified by David Bedrick in process-oriented facilitation, which involves somatic work and other interventions designed to unshame the psyche shame. We could use a little of that in the world. For the last six years, she's helped hundreds of clients transform their subconscious minds to create more of what they want in their lives and their businesses. She specializes in helping clients stop craving sugar. And I have to say, I have watched this explode for her in the best way. And she's on a mission to help 1000 people quit craving sugar by the end of 2025. She can be found on Instagram at Quit Sugar Coach and as, as Sarah Rhiannon on Facebook. Welcome, Sarah. I'm so glad you're here.
1: Oh, me too. It's such a treat always to be connected with you and to, nec- and to connect with you in real time. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's such a joy. I'm, I'm super excited about the ways that the things that you do intersect with... Mm-hmm with like the ways things I do and also with really making the world a better place. So I want you to just tell the audience what you said right before I hit record, because I said to Sarah, (laughs) okay, we're going to talk about like what we're going to do about the world, the state of the world from our own skill sets and our own business perspectives. Like what can we specifically do? And she said...
1: I said I'm the last person anybody should ever ask that question. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of buffers of privilege, which I have spent um, considerable time, you know, becoming really intimately familiar with and this, that, and the other, Um And that said, it's, it's (laughs) that part of my journey and experience has definitely been a process of, oh, wow, like the more you think, you know, like the more, you know, the more you don't know. So, but you know, it's funny, like having the bio that I wrote, by the way, (laughs) read back to me, (laughs) like hearing it read back in the way that she beautifully and very sweetly read it. It's like, oh, like I am, I, I'm. Doing what I know how to do, I'm doing what I've learned, um, unshaming, oh my gosh, for sure, is something, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's something I've got good stuff to say about. So yeah, it reminds me of how like we don't have to be an expert in everything. We don't have to have the answers to everything, but the answers that we do have are, like really good and are maybe even enough, maybe even plentiful. So I like that. I like thinking of it like that.
0: So how do you feel about diving like right into the heart of it? Because I'm an intensive and I'm pretty sure you're an intensive. And so that's where we find our joy in our meat. Is that okay with you if I just go right for the heart of it?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes. How does shame intersect with anti-oppression work?
1: I mean, how doesn't it? It's like, like, think of this. If somebody is growing up in a world, in a culture, in a part of the world where, you know, all of the faces that they see on magazines don't look like their face. If all of the people being cast in the movies, you know, all the people, like celebrity culture, right? All of the people that we are seeing being celebrated... Whether it's in the movies, on the magazine covers, on the talk shows, you know, like wherever people are seeing other people on screens, (laughs) if the vast majority of people are able-bodied, white, blonde, or, you know, thin, et cetera, have certain features that all kind of look the same and their education's the same and the way they talk and speak and and all of the the different… yeah if if if, if, it's, <laughs> if it's if it's if all you're seeing everywhere in terms of who's being celebrated, who's being asked to make decisions, who's being looked to to make decisions, who's being looked to as the standard, nobody ever has to tell you that there's something wrong with you it, it's just in the atmosphere. this is how the subconscious mind works. nobody ever has to tell you anything. It's creating – the atmosphere is creating a shaming experience on its own.
0: Okay. So that's from one side. Now Mm -hmm. I want to ask – because this is the thing that I've noticed in especially white-dominated liberal spaces. So Mm -hmm. people who want to do right, people who want to do good, people who are like just white people trying to do the right thing, not sure exactly how, but doing their level best. Mm -hmm. And every time they feel like they've messed up a little, there's that shame. Every time they <laughs> yeah. realize after the fact they did it wrong, there's that shame, right? So that's like, yes, there's this thing that happens when the world doesn't look like you. I For, for any listeners who don't know, I'm multiracial and many other things that make me visually distinct from the people that I usually spend my time with. But- but what I'm more interested in is like how, because I think, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> popular, unpopular take, I am I think that one of the major obstacles to doing true anti-oppression change work is that shame.
1: I agree. So here is like kind of my two cents on that. Um, and the way that I think about shame now is very different from like... From what I think most people, I've spent a lot of time studying. I mean, I've had the immense privilege of being really immersed <laughs> in David Bedrick's perspective of shame and unshaming. And it's quite different. Um, like, so what I learned from him is that shame is a paradigm. It's not a feeling. It can manifest as a feeling for sure. But what I really like when I hear that example of like white people messing up and like, like taking responsibility for that, you know, or like uh, reducing harm and uh, like making it right, committing to doing better. I I'm not saying that it's not shame, but what I am saying is that I would call that more a feeling of like remorse and maybe even embarrassment. Shame as a paradigm is much different than, like, a feeling of, oh, I messed up. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm so wrong. I just, like, you know, fuck up all the time. We can go into that if you want. Yeah. So shame is an internal – the way that I would describe it, David would use probably very different language, but I'm going to use the language that obviously I understand. The way that I understand it in terms of what I've learned – from him in particular. And this really makes sense to me because I do think there's a difference between paradigm and feeling state. So let me say it this way When I was growing up as a neurodivergent kid, and what was going into my subconscious was like all of these different experiences of like, I'm not okay, I'm not learning fast enough, you know, in comparison to right. the other kids my age around me and this, that, and the other, I internalized a self-concept that caused me to dismiss my experience, that caused me to not know how to protect myself from harm. And that manifested in all kinds of ways as, a, as an mm-hmm. adult. Here's the thing. Shame is a paradigm that distances us from our power. It's a, it's a paradigm within ourselves that when internalized, it it keeps us from recognizing our own experience in a variety of ways and also recognizing our own experience as valuable. So, for example, like, and I'm just gonna say this really plainly, this may come with a little bit of like a content warning, trigger warning, but like, I was in a couple relationships as an adult up until I was like 35 or so years old, I didn't even know I was being hurt in those relationships. Oh, God, yeah. I didn't have a clue. I mean, I was not only being hurt, but I would even say there was like, you know, borderline abuse happening Mm -hmm. in those, definitely borderline in one, definitely full on in the other that I'm thinking. And it's like, this is what shame does to people. This is shame. Shame causes you to be so disconnected from... Not just your power, but like your gifts, your talents, what's really amazing about you, your aptitudes, (laughs) what you have to bring to the table. I mean, this is like, you know, the seat of what we might call imposter syndrome right here, right? Mm -hmm. This is what that's like one manifestation of that. That's how I understand shame. Shame is something that when internalized, it really blocks us from ourselves, so, yes, obviously, this is a thing – this is think, probably more people experience than not, and this is part of how, like, when a white person messes up, it – here's how I'll say this, and it's going to take me a minute to kind of get this out – The the other thing that shame does is it not only distances us from our own experience, it not only distances us from our needs, our, like I said, our gifts, our, our truths, right? But it's like if I'm a white person who messes up and I've got like shame, if I've got that paradigm kind of activated and those feelings of like really intense embarrassment and remorse activated, I cannot focus on creating repair with you. If I am so stuck in my own feelings of like perfectionism and I fucked up and I did something wrong, I got to deal with that so that I can create repair with you so that my strategy, my creativity, and what I've got to bring to the table, my care for you can be brought forth. Does that make sense? So it's like, I got to find a way to deal with my inner critic inner criticism is another manifestation of that shame paradigm. So this is like, does, is this making sense? If the, if yeah, it's not, making, tell me, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. No, you're making perfect sense. And what mm-hmm. I'm hearing as you talk about the other elements, this, this kind of insidious nonsense that our brains come up with, because it's mm-hmm. not just white people, obviously. It's a lot of us who are, is that we're all soaked in this white supremacist, colonialist mentality. Yeah. And that that's what, often feeds this because there's this kind of irreparability, this unredeemable quality. It's funny, when mm-hmm. I was in, gosh, a long time ago, when I was in seminary, one of the people I was in seminary with had a partner who wrote uh, this, I believe, essay. This, I believe, was a series of of radio pieces that came out on NPR. Gosh, yeah, long time ago. Um, and then they published some of them in a book. Anyway, This one person's, this I believe essay was about, I believe in redemption was the opening line. And it got me thinking about how much we don't believe in redemption as a culture.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's big.
0: Mm -hmm. And if we don't believe in redemption as a culture, then of course we're backed into this perfectionism because you Mm -hmm. only get one chance to get it right if you can't be redeemed.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a tough cookie. (laughs) It's a tough one. But what I've seen is like the reason why I think this unshaming work is so valuable is because it creates a space where we can get to know these facets of ourselves so that when they happen, when they arise, it's it's not like, oh, you go deal with yourself like in private, like, you know, you could deal with your own private hell privately. But it's like, I'm, I feel so blessed, like to have learned as much as I have from this work. Because if somebody did call my ass out for whatever, I know like that I've got the skills and the tools to be able to meet that person and really listen to them without drowning in whatever shame paradigm i may have internalized like as a kid or throughout my life like i know for sure i may not have done like all of the anti oppression work that a person can do i don't think that's even a thing anyway but i can tell you right now i have done a critical mass of unshaming work like that i can tell you and mean it and now Let's say what that means, because that doesn't mean I never feel bad about myself or that I never experience feelings of embarrassment yeah, just, or like helping. or anything yeah. like that. That's not what that means. It's that I expect that to happen. Like the result of unshaming work, there's not this expectation of like, oh, you're gonna, I don't know, be like whatever the westernized like let's let's just be real. The word healed. Subconsciously, for a lot of people, means like perfect. Like we're going to yeah, become perfect. Done. We're yeah, we're done. I, like
0: <laughs> I've dusted off we're, like, we're moving on. That project yeah, is finished.
1: <laughs> right, we're the best version of ourselves, <laughs> or whatever. And it's like no, that's. Not a thing. So what unshaming has done for me is that I just no longer have that expectation that I'm gonna reach a certain point where I don't experience those feelings, where I don't have that experience. But what I know for sure is that now I'm not saying I wouldn't feel embarrassed or upset or what have you if that were to happen. I mean, literally my handle on Instagram is quit sugarcoach and I'm already like. You know what I mean? That has all kinds of implications. And I can talk about that at some point, you know, too. Um, There's a whole lot to say about that. But what I know, what I really believe myself, like what I can really say out loud and believe as I'm saying it is that I've got the skill to not just like deal with the feelings like in a soldier on bootstrappy like kind of way, but that they wouldn't stop me from repair where repair could be had, assuming that that's even welcome. Um, Nobody owes me the opportunity, you know, for me to repair. Mm -hmm. Nobody owes me that. But I know that I would be able to meet that in a very different way than I would have without the unshaming work. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So let's turn our lens a little bit broader, Mm -hmm. right? We've been talking a lot about you and your specific experience, which is really useful because there's nothing like a personal experience. in, In my opinion, there's nothing like personal experience and application of something to really demonstrate the impact that it can have. Like for you to be able to go into a space or a new experience or a relationship or a conversation and feel grounded enough that you can trust yourself to handle it well if somebody says or does something and you're like, Oh crap, I should have done something differently, or if they call you out, or whatever. Like that's an incredible tool to have in your pocket, especially for this kind of work. But also like broadly, broadly. So you're I mean mm-hmm. I uh, looking at w- the way that that running a business and marketing and whatever work, you found a very specific niche that would allow people to get some benefit from your skills and to allow you to very specifically to target clients. Right, like you can say, "I do this thing, this very specific thing," and people who want to do that very specific thing know that you're the person to call for that. Which is kind of the Mark Holy mm-hmm. Grail in most cases. <laughs> <laughs> you want people, <laughs> yeah, you have to be able to say what you do, like Coke makes soda, that's what they make they they might own a bunch of other companies, but the Coke brand is associated with drinking fizzy, sugary, watery stuff mm-hmm. and if that's what you want, coke like we all know Coke is one of the options for that. Pepsi is one of the options for that, right? So for you, we all know now that if I feel like I'm craving sugar in a way that doesn't work for me and I would like to stop craving sugar in a way that doesn't work for me, I should call Sarah. We know that. It's very straightforward. But there's a broader thing happening here, right? Because you're using this tool that has so many different avenues. So are you having people come back to you after they've done their one, you know, quit sugar session and being like, "Can, can I quit this other thing or can we change this other thing?
1: Yeah, for sure. Not necessarily like in droves, but yeah, that like for people who have an interest in not only getting to know themselves, but like <laughs> it's like it's funny. I I I feel, I feel like in a lot of ways, what I offer and what I do is kind of a bridge between like unshaming what we what we might call unshaming work and like just really like kind of hard boiled you know transformation work. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: hard-boiled transformation work that's a mouthful
1: like like when you leave the session with me you will feel differently like as in when you call a plumber and have them come to your home to like clear out a pipe or whatever they do like it's going to be done. That job's getting done for you. That's what I mean when I say like really hard-boiled transformation work. I mean like something is changing. Yeah. Like like you come to the session feeling like you can't stop thinking about – like you're ruminating on something, whether it's a craving, an intense emotional experience, you know, or something else entirely. You're going to leave that session with some mass of that having been cleared as well as unshamed, if that makes sense. Like, that's my promise, essentially.
0: Right, because, like, the work that you and I did together was a lot more amorphous, and that was Mm -hmm. by design. Like, it wasn't an accident that that was not as specific. But but when somebody comes to you and is like, I have this specific thing, I keep thinking about it, I really wish I wouldn't think about it (laughs) like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, it's fine that it's in my head, but, like, not all the time. It's taking up too much space. I rented it, like – you know, Mm -hmm. one corner desk, and now it's taken up the entire co-working space. It's not working.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so there's this place where, like, there's a shame about having let it take over the entire co-working space.
1: Exactly. And so I feel like it's funny to even think of unshaming as being, like, different or somehow in its own world. But Like, what I often hear from David and what I think is really important is that, like, this is really worth people understanding. Like, sometimes the point of unshaming is not to transform something, but so that you can have a totally different experience of, like, whatever your tendencies are. David tells a beautiful story, and I know he wouldn't mind if I said this because he tells this story In a variety of spaces, like probably most classes, but he worked with a client who was agoraphobic for like decades, right? And he worked with that client for a number of years. She never left her house after the work that they did together. But what she discovered is this woman loves being home. Mm. Imagine like, If that's your tendency, if something in you just doesn't want to go to your fucking mailbox, imagine living that life and it doesn't occur to you anymore that you should figure that out so that you go to your mailbox and then from your mailbox, you go to the store. Like imagine like that, like just being that, like that person just being who they are and feeling such a deep sense of safety and pleasure In what kind of life, yeah, and relief in a life that just feels deeply right to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That image of like, you know, a lot of us struggled to some extent or other with staying indoors during the kind of peak lockdown (laughs) phase of the pandemic. And of -hmm. course, fire smoke also keeps us indoors. But imagine if you were somebody who was like, you know, it's funny because all of our language in English that I can think of offhand that references people who prefer to stay home and prefer to stay relatively separate from other people is judgmental, right? It has, yeah. in, in, in the same way that like I had to invent the language of intensives and expansives because all the language we had for intensives was like, oh, you're a lot, you're too much, you're, you know, like mm-hmm. all this stuff. And I was like, how, where are the words that just describe this neutrally? Yeah. Oh, there aren't any. Lovely. Well, then I guess we're going to have to find some. And, and this is the same thing, right, because we think about like you could be a recluse, you could be like the witch on the edge of town, which I know some of us are sort of reclaiming as an image or an archetype, but <laughs> yeah but it, but it's not like default in our society being separate, you know, there's that stereotype yeah. of like the house in the old part of town that has a fence around it. It's a little bit unkempt in the yard. The house maybe needs a little bit of tending. You can't really see what's going on in there. And the kids all say it's haunted and it's, you know, the person who lives there is mean, right? Like that stereotype is so embedded. What if you were just like, I am the lady who stays home?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so it's like that is like i think a really beautiful illustration of what unshaming is about because like if if my inclination is to just stay home i would it's like who's who who's to say that that's not my expansion who's to say mm-hmm. that that's not my adventure or my pleasure or my best life
0: yeah i mean i I think think about like all of the all again i'm I'm like back in the fairy tales and the archetypes, like think about mm-hmm. the, even the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast. Her father is that person mm-hmm. right like yeah, he lives on the edge of town, but he's also an inventor. he invents actual useful things. you know why he's able to do that because he lives on the edge of town and doesn't talk to other people and doesn't care what they <laughs> think and doesn't care that they think he's crazy he just does what he does and that yeah. kind of runs interference and provides a buffer. But what if your own brain could run that interference and provide that buffer? What if you could just be like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go further than the edge of my property. I don't want to go outside the walls of my head. I, I actually really like it here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: And so that's what unshaming does. It gives people a real chance, like, to get to know, like, what's actually true in their experience. And then it's, like, should become something that goes from, um, like, a real thing to it's just a thought. It's no longer something that has power. Um, Like, imagine living a life where should is just not – a thing. And, you know, going back to what you said about redemption, I think there's a real fear that, well, if nobody ever thought they should be a certain way or do a certain thing, you know, like we need to, we can't have accountability without shame or without guilt. Now guilt and shame are different and I don't want to go down a whole thing with that because I like the conversation we're having. But... (laughs) I think remorse would be completely different in our experience without shame. I think guilt and like self-reflection, it wouldn't go away. It would just be a completely different experience. I think I'm more likely to be accountable for any harm that I've done without shame having a chokehold on me, you know, than not. So that's Mm – but that's the, th- the cool thing about it is that people really get it to get to know themselves. And through that, you know, there's this whole culture that tells us to, like, love ourselves, right? And it's like, well, have you even gotten to know yourself? Like, maybe <laughs> I <love> do that.
0: <laughs> I love, no, so, so I love that so much because this stuff tails obviously, with the work that I do.
1: So mm-hmm. many people come
0: to me and are like, oh, my God, I'm an intensive There's nothing wrong with me. Like That is, Mm, honest to God, one of the first lines out of a lot of people's mouths. They're like, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with the way that I think. There's nothing wrong with the way that I function. Oh, I just have a phasic work cycle. I just work like hell and then I rest and I work like hell and then I rest. That's just how I am.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. Beautiful. And I'm
0: like, yeah, that's just how you are. So that's just what you plan for. You just like Tell the people around you, get yourself hired into a job that accommodates that. Like if you run a business, expect that. Expect that you will push for a while and then stop. You'll be wildly generative and then you'll stop. And that's all part of the cycle. It's all part of the process. Once you know it's like that, you can plan for it. And then you're right. That like dissolves the should. So not So Because what we want to do is get away from, I should be working the same amount every day. Every week, all the time, I should <laughs> yeah. be equally generative every day. I should be less excited. I should be more businesslike, whatever the heck that is, right? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and 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 so it is. It's really about creating an atmosphere that normalizes us as us and lifts the shame, so that then we can make conscious decisions. It's not like we don't. Decide that we need to change something about ourselves sometimes. But it's made from a, it's made from a less emotionally loaded place.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And what I notice, I don't know, I'm sure your clients have noticed this too. Like, how much fun, how much more do they just, it's like self-love just kind of happens when you really get to know yourself. <laughs> it's not like, I feel like all the self love culture that we see is just like a whole lot of like, you know, happy face stickers on like an empty gas tank. Like, I know I'm supposed to Ugh. love myself. I know I'm supposed to love my body the way it is and like blah, blah, blah. And like, uh, it's like, well, get to like, is like, there's, there's just this like, should, it's like even self love becomes a should, but there's like nobody's really offering like a clear path. To whatever that experience is, there are a lot of affirmations. There's a lot of like, take these supplements and eat these things <laughs> and, you know,
0: do these exercises Let's and add what have you. <laughs> shoulds on top of the list of yeah. shoulds you already had. And then if you are good enough, yeah. then you will be accepted. Then you will be acceptable, right? This idea that you have yeah. to meet some kind of standard instead of <laughs> like, when you meet a baby, you love the baby first,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And what about the
0: rest of us? Like, why should we have to be, you know, between the ages of zero and two to be loved first?
1: Oh, God. That's really weird. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And so it's like, I I hear people say all the time, like, I should take better care of myself. I should do this. I should do that. And it's like, well, What's it like for you to just do what you actually do? What what kind of intelligence is flowing through you that has you, you know, reaching for sugar, that has you reaching for whatever the case may be or has you doing absolutely nothing when you feel like you should be doing something? I want to get to know that person. I want to help you meet that person underneath mm-hmm. all the stuff you've been told and all the thoughts that are happening which are, are not your fault it's the atmosphere like that you've been living in like none of this is your fault and so like the conundrum of not feeling like it <laughs> i mean there's a whole lot of intelligence and information that when people can get to know it it's like then they just like how can you, you you can't help but love yourself once you've gotten to know that person. Self-love just it's more like a phenomenon, it's more like a result. I feel like the journey getting there is in the getting to know, is in the meeting the intelligence. That's and that's like the unshaming, you know. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding of how to do that, but I hear very few people actually talking about it in that way and there's just a whole lot of like self love is being performed really well in all you know kind of this well, and that I, and the other but yeah anyway you were yeah i, I, I want to hear what you were yeah, going to say think,
0: i think that there's a a kind of there's a kind of kindness that's mm-hmm. lacking right yeah. now in the world like we don't know how to be kind to ourselves mm-hmm. have you ever done that thing where you like pick an object the stereotype is kind of you lie down in the grass outside. But if you're not in a place with grass or you don't like being outside, then it doesn't have to be anything outside. You just pick like any object, any object at all, and you just stare at it or you look at your hand and you just stare at it for a while <laughs> until you realize like how exquisite it is, how fascinating it is how engaging it is just that thing that you're staring at, whether it's a pencil or a battery or your fingertip or whatever. Like, And I feel like what you're talking about doing is, is doing that, but with yourself, right? Like, let's just yeah. find out. Like, what if we, Kimberly Shepard posted a thing about, and if, if for listeners, if you don't know Kimberly Shepard's work, you need to know Kimberly Shepard's work. Even if you don't have any kids who are going to college, because she does like young adult and and high school like college prep and and coaching. But even if you don't have anybody who falls into that, you should just follow her. Just follow her on social media. But yeah, completely
1: agree. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but Kimberly posted a thing about presuming competence in your children, because she talks about kids, especially older kids. But she talks about how she was taught to presume competence in her child when her child went to a nursery school that had a philosophy of presumed competence, that assuming that if a kid did something, there was a reason behind it, that the kid had actually thought it through and that the adults just maybe couldn't understand how the kid was thinking. And and like, what if we assume that, like you said, if we're reaching for a particular food, even though there's some internal sense, and I would even argue that we don't feel like we should or shouldn't do things. We think that we should or shouldn't do things. Mm-hmm. And then that thought creates a feeling of like dissonance or discomfort or guilt or whatever, because, because what we are feeling is what we're acting on.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And so it's like, what, what would it be like to move through the, through the world and just be at peace, be to trust ourselves, to presume our own competence to Be like, if we're doing this, there must be a reason. And if this yeah. is in conflict with something else that we feel like we should do, or we'd like to do, or we want to do, or something else that we've seen have a result that we want, where is the dissonance? The or the like, where are the gears slipping between those two things? Why? Why am I doing this thing that I'm doing? And it's the yeah. kind of the kinder mm-hmm. flip side of that. What's your payoff question that some therapists and coaches will ask? but I like this one better.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that, yeah, the payoff thing is a little tricky and has, I think kind of threads of a shaming uh, witnessing kind of like woven into that. I would say there's a whole, I wouldn't say there's a payoff because let me tell you something. People, you know, do the thing that, that they're doing And then they look at the payoff and they think, well, what the hell's wrong with me? Why would I do that? Why did I do that? They're questioning all of that. That's usually what happens when the payoff has become realized, right? (laughs) But what's happening is I wouldn't say there's a payoff. I would say there's an entire universe of experience happening in that person. They're trying to do something. Uh They're trying to do something. Um, Like... I used to. There are certain things I used to do as a teen that I don't. I don't want to say that what they are because I don't want to put that image in people's minds because I'm very sensitive <laughs> yeah. to like, you know, imagery and stuff like that. But there's certain, and I wouldn't call it self harm, but it's like it could. Anyway, so there are certain things I used to do as a teenager where it, like. What I'm very clear about now is, like, I was trying to pull something out of me. Every time I would, like, Mm -hmm. pull my hair, whether it was, like, you know, hair in my arm or something, I would – I was trying to pull something out. Like, Mm -hmm. it was very literal. But I'm telling you right now, I had no clue that that's what I was doing when I was doing that. Something was seeping into me that I was desperately trying to pull out. But of course, on the outside looking in, it would look like, oh, that person's like harming themselves. Oh, they need to love themselves. And it's like, well, let's find out what she's actually doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Makes sense? Yeah. So we can really look at it. Like, that's a big part of the somatic work that I do too, is that like not just looking to the body for wisdom, but like looking at the actual behavior as like a somatic intelligence that is being carried out. Let's get to know what that's like. So what
0: happens? Here we go deep again. What mm-hmm. happens when an entire community of people does that? Like imagine that mm-hmm. that you had, you know, a community of 50 people or 100 people or 200 people interconnected people who interact regularly, who support each other. What happens when an entire community of people does that and gets that relationship with their somatic experience and that relationship with their shame or lack of shame now. What happens? How does it change things?
1: When – okay, so let's talk about this for a moment. Like when you say a group of people doing the same thing, you mean like a group of people all doing like the same behavior or like having the same tendency? Give me like no. an example. Like what do you – No, yeah, I mean a whole let community – let's
0: suppose – Let's suppose that you came into an entire group of people. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, in my head, what I'm visualizing is like a town. But Mm -hmm. imagine, you know, we live in a highly interconnected online world. So it wouldn't necessarily need to be a town. But what happens when a group of people who interact regularly all go through this unshaming process, all go through this somatic awareness process? What happens when all of the people that you're surrounded with, or let's say 85% of the people you're surrounded with, have this, this experience, this skill set, these tools that they use and that they regularly, regularly return to. In the way that when I was a kid, going to therapy was a the thing that only people in New York City did. <laughs> like that was the stereotype. <laughs> yeah. And it was only for like specific people. Like very few people had a therapist. And there was this kind of stereotype of wealthy New Yorkers. Oh yeah, I have a therapist, right? Like, And now almost everybody I know thinks that therapy is a good idea and if you can afford it or if your insurance will cover it, you should be in therapy with a good therapist. Like this idea that we need that kind of support for the challenges in our lives, not necessarily continuously, but certainly intermittently. That every so often you got to go unpack stuff. Um, Like that kind of thing. But imagine... So the transformation from when I was a child to now is the transformation from therapy being almost a shameful thing that you shouldn't need and if you do, you're kind of weird and to being something that we generally understand to be supportive and that many of us have tools from our therapists, so much so that you can go on Twitter and find a thread of advice from your therapist this week. Like People will just go, I don't know, Twitter has gotten to be a mess, but it used to be that you could go on on Twitter and find a thread where people were just posting the insights they got from therapy and like people who couldn't afford therapy or who didn't have a great therapy week would learn something from that thread.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So imagine a community of people who all have these skills. What what does that change? If everybody's I mean, it?
1: I don't know exactly because I've never seen that happen and it's hard just like I I'm I'm thoroughly curious and thoroughly interested, like, that's the kind of project I would be so down, <laughs> you know, like, to take on, not just by myself, but, like, you know, um, that would be, like, a really fun and cool thing, like, to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what would happen. I think it wouldn't hurt, you know, <laughs> like...
0: Come on, dream deeper than that.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's just, well... I feel like I've heard people say, like, if everybody, like, you know, could just, you know, whatever, like, have this tool or have this thing. I, I mean, I think what we would see is that for sure, like, some people would have immense would, – would find immense value in it. I think there would still be people who – maybe wouldn't quite see the value in it. I still think there would be like, yeah, it's like for some people it's great. And for others, it's like, oh, that's a nice idea. Like that's great for that person. I don't know that it would necessarily affect each person in the same way, similar to how, like, I'll tell you one thing. Like I, I get on the phone with a lot of people. I've worked with a lot of people. I do not bat a thousand and I bring like the same skill set to like every call I interact with the person Mm -hmm. as needed. I think the thing to understand about these tools is that like what makes them so amazing and so effective and useful is that we're working with the person's subjective experience. We're not working with a set of like objective concepts and ideas that we're telling people like, like oh these are like guidelines for how to live or this is like what you should mm-hmm. be doing and this is like the opposite right so mm-hmm. I think what if a if a whole town of people got to go through an unshaming process I think there would be like really visible changes that you would see but then there would be also changes that would be happening completely outside of awareness that we might not see in terms of, like I said, like a hard-boiled transformation, but that person's experience of themselves would be very different. Now, what would that mean in terms of how they impact other people and how they impact the world? Again, I, yeah, it's, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's hard to imagine because I can imagine, you know, the person who's not, who's living like on the edge of town, who's not interacting with the people, not believing that they should, I mean, we may not see like the energetic relationship or the energetic impact that that person like buzzing in their homes by themselves has on the rest of a town, for example. But for sure, people would, I think would, Feel very differently inside their own experience of themselves, and they might interact with each other in a more honest way. I think people would discover that they just don't have time to do things that are not that important to them. And they may discover going all in on what's actually important to them and really realizing, you know, the gifts that they have to go all in on. I think some of those things would become very. Not only possible, but likely. Now, how that would look in terms of a town interacting together? Yeah, it's it's kind of hard even for me to imagine. But I I'm down for the idea. I'm down to spend more time imagining that.
0: Yeah, I I mean, to me, the first thing that I think of is is sort of what happened in bits and pieces and. Bibs and bobs during the pandemic, like heart of the lockdown when everybody was still paying attention to it, as opposed to now. (laughs) When, when like people were like, you know what? I could die. I could die from this thing. I'm not going to waste my time working for this terrible job. I don't have the patience for this terrible, like, we're still seeing it, you know, this kind of pressure to return to office and the people who were told they would be able to work from home indefinitely and now the companies are like oh no actually we were kidding and people are like i moved halfway across the country based on your your information you can't just undecide that like that's not how that yeah. works and if you yeah. do that i'm quitting and so many more companies realizing that they can that they that they can work remotely that they can have a fully distributed team that they can give up all of that very expensive office rent and put mm-hmm. a fraction of the money into giving people a home office stipend. And people who still want to go into a communal workspace can then sign up with a, you know, an office space or a co-working space or whatever to get some of that experience. And, you know, this this RTO push is so there's so many shoulds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so many, like, there's so much pressure in it. And and what would it be like if 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 Everybody was just able to say, nope, I know what my limits are in art. I know what my boundaries are in art. And Mm -hmm. um, like no judgment, no shade, but I'm not doing that. And
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, the thing
1: about the unshaming process and these kinds of tools is that like every – not everybody will arrive at that place of self-knowing within the same time frame, Right. So that's like true. some people would have to spend years and it might not even be something like a lot of people are really content to continue on being comfortably numb and that's okay. So like you would still mm-hmm. have people like that. I mean, I, I talk to people, it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, like somebody thinks like that all this unshaming and somatic stuff, like sounds so good. Right.
0: And they get on the phone with me and they're like, I don't really see the point of all this. You know or what they, I mean? Like, yeah. Or they say like that. Actually, like I I understand why you say it's a good thing, but that sounds really uncomfortable. And no, thank you.
1: Yeah, um, exactly. So not everybody wants to do that. Unfortunately, now I. But I think like what we're seeing is that even though most people may not have the language for what we might call unshaming yet. Shame is definitely a bigger conversation that's starting to be had and how that relates to boundaries and people's value systems, their their needs, all of those things. People are definitely getting further into relationship with that than I think they ever have. So yeah, hell yeah, we're seeing more of that. And I think it would probably still just be I w- I don't know if it would be as messy and in like like kind of conflicting as you're as we're seeing now, right? But yeah, I think it would still be really just kind of messy. Everybody's going to arrive to whatever that self-knowing point is at a different time. Some people it's going to take a while for them to even see the value of it for whatever reason. And if people are benefiting from lots of shoulds being in place that are being put on other people, yeah, probably not their first priority (laughs) would be like to create an unshaming atmosphere. Um, So there's all that too.
0: I, I agree. And also I just, my experience of, of groups of people, and I know that we're coming, in some ways, we're coming to this conversation from two different locations because you're coming from primarily individual work. And I'm coming from a background of parish ministry where one mm. of the main things we're thinking about is how the group interacts with itself. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. And and yeah. we can presume in that group a certain amount of of agreement on broad goals. And also we can find in those groups an incredible amount of disagreement, especially when it makes people uncomfortable to make change, which it yeah. usually does. But but my experience of groups is that there is a tipping point. There's several tipping mm. points. And one of those tipping points is when you have a group culture and you get more than 25% of that group, which is not that much. When you get more than 25% of that group doing something significantly different from what the group culture has been, the group changes. If you want to make a culture in a group and you don't want to do an an enormous amount of active work on that maintenance of that culture, what you do is you keep the influx of new people below 25%. And so when I Mm -hmm. think about like, how do we move How do we move white supremacist culture? How do we move ableist culture? How do we move all of these things that are so profoundly embedded everywhere from architecture to the structures of academia to the way we recognize knowledge and information trends? Like it's everywhere, right? When I think about that, I think, what if just 25%, 26% of people in a group, in in a small group, like I'm not... I don't have this vision that we're going to be able to change twenty five percent of the world, at least not right off but what if what if we have a group of a hundred people, which is a very small congregation, or what if we have a group of you know six hundred mm-hmm. people which in my denomination is kind of a mid sized large congregation, if you have six hundred people and you get a quarter of those people what do you what if you give them these tools and they're already kind of moving in the same direction they already kind of agree on what they want to do what what happens if you introduce them to the tools to lift the shame out of the system how do they change how does that change how they interact how does that change how they think about each other like just with intensives and expansives when mm-hmm. i introduce this to a group of people and sometimes it's just a, a leadership team of like 6 sometimes it's a slightly larger group sometimes it's 50 right but when i introduce this to a group of people and they start to get it and the intensives become less ashamed of their intensiveness, and the expansives become less ashamed of their needs, because that's what happens. Mm. Yeah. Intensives become less ashamed of who they are, and expansives become less ashamed of what they need. And then they start to perceive, really see and love and understand, see that exquisiteness in each other, right? They, they start to fall in love with themselves and with each other because once Mm -hmm. they start to accept themselves and and de-shame their experience of themselves then they can de-shame their experience of the other and I know that your tools and my tools for this are different and we use that word slightly differently but it's but it's cousins right oh for sure yeah like what happens is that people begin to appreciate each other they stop judging each other. And then we back out of Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Relationship Apocalypse that I talk about all the time
1: in relationship
0: <laughs> to work relationships, this idea that we want to get rid of contempt, we want to get rid of stonewalling, we want to get rid of, like, we don't even want to have those things happen in the first place. But even if we've gotten down so far down that road that we have contempt in the system, and Gottman mm-hmm. would say, if you've got contempt, you're the third of four horsemen, that's bad. <laughs> I think contempt is third it might be second but I'm pretty sure it's third Uh, stonewalling is last and if you've hit stonewalling you're really sunk but and he sees them as a progression but but if you if even if you've gotten all the way to contempt when when you introduce tools for mutual appreciation there's this sudden shift in the conversation it's like oh, thank God you like all those fiddly details because I sure as heck don't.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And like the relief. See, you know, like when somebody walks in and you don't really like them and you don't really understand them and so you're like your shoulders go up a little bit and it changes. It changes into relief. It changes into spaciousness. It changes into collaboration. And so I'm thinking about like what happens if, if your tools were to be in a large system like several hundred people system even, Mm -hmm. or several thousand people. And there were enough people walking around doing that, thinking about it that way, engaging that way, carrying their own power, because my thing is that everybody has power somehow, carrying Mm -hmm. their own power into that system and being like, you know, I don't always see eye to eye with this person. I don't really understand this person all the time, but damn, they're a good presenter. And I'm really glad they're a good presenter because... I hate being on the stage. And so we just trade. I make the slide deck and they get up on the stage and it's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that I mean, all of what you're saying makes sense. I don't have a I I don't have a ton of experience working in groups in that way. And that's like just very kind of you know, like that's just my personality. That's just um, kind of how I work best. I've done group coaching calls and certainly led like processes and tools and stuff like that. But it sounds like you're really talking about like the nitty gritty of like the unfolding, not just like bringing people together, having them learn tools, but you're talking about people who have relationships, right? Like with each other, which is, that's not a group coaching Atmosphere, no. <laughs> right? That's so
0: different. Now this <laughs> group or an existing team or people yeah. that, at minimum, that that are hoping to or expecting to build relationships going forward, which is kind of yeah. my dream of the institute, right? Is that members mm-hmm. of the institute will get to know each other and will interact with each other and will become connected. We'll be will form one of those many social networks that we that we need as social beings. Like even if you live on the edge of town, you live on the edge of town. Somebody has to be sufficiently engaged with you to bring you groceries if you're not going to go out for them. True. Yeah, exactly. There's still an engagement. There's still an interrelationship there. And so like Mm -hmm. when I think about the tools that you're offering, I don't just think about the transformation for the individual because I'm watching this on Facebook and I I have joked for years that my presence on Facebook is sort of like being the mayor of a small town. So I get <laughs> on Facebook and I stroll around and I see how people are going. And when I say small town, I mean like the 867 person small town I lived in in rural Maine. Like right. Small. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And so even though I have more friends on Facebook than live in that town, and and you know the way that that would work if you're a minister, or a mayor, or whatever you you go downtown periodically and you stroll into the shops and you say hello and you sit down on somebody's porch and you have a cup of tea or coffee and you have a chat with them and you catch up on all the news at the general store. Like literally that is how small towns work for people who don't know this. I know. (laughs) I love it. I I lived in suburbs and large cities for a long time, but once I started living in small towns, I realized that this very in-person, very materially present um, way of being is in fact how you stay in touch with people in a small town. You know, if you haven't heard from somebody in a while, you you give them a call or you ask the grapevine, the grapevine will tell you, oh yeah, Jimmy's been laid up with a sore leg for six weeks. Oh God, well, are we going to have a bean supper for him or what? Right? Like there's a, there's a very, bean suppers are a fundraising tool, a community. It's crowdfunding, old fashioned crowdfunding basically everybody comes to a bean supper and kicks a little money into the bucket and then the person can rebuild their house or pay their medical bill or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and so when I think of, of the tools that you have, I think of them in terms of the way that they transform relationships over time, the longitudinal impact of doing this work in the world, because mm-hmm. I'm excited about your work, not just because it's wonderful anyway, not just because I really believe in hypnosis and I think about hypnosis and like the ways that the things that it teaches us about how plastic our brains are and the things that it teaches us about how we can change ourselves, not just on the individual front, but like also what happens when five people who know each other on Facebook all do a quit sugar session? What happens when 25 people all do a what are you calling the other sessions you're doing? I know you're doing 45 minutes something else sessions, something resistance.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like, well, <laughs> one of my clients called it the resistance remover because it like, it's like that feeling of dread, right? Like, I want to do this. I have desire, but I also have dread. It, that's That's what that is. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I have resistance
0: yeah. to doing this. And sometimes it's something that seems like it should be a no-brainer, like, oh, I should write an email every week and I don't. I finally just released myself from that. I was like, my people don't want me to yammer away just because my jaw is hinged. They want me to say something significant or not say anything at all. So my email list is very sporadic. Mm-hmm. But that's not true for everybody. Some people are, especially if they're speaking to an expansive audience, that, that every week email is a good thing. It's it's useful. And if you have resistance to that, that can be really painful and it can, that can cause shame. Like I should want to do this. I don't do this. I skipped last week. Now what? Like I told them it would be weekly. It's now monthly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Or like I want to start
0: a Substack. I have plenty of things to say, but I can't make myself sit down and write them down. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, with the clients that I work with, sometimes it's like, oh, there's a single point of resistance and we can just like mechanically manage it, systemically manage it. But sometimes it's in your head, but I think about what happens. What happens if we watch this? Because I'm watching this ripple out on Facebook, <laughs> where people are, doing, people are doing these these quit sugar sessions. People are doing these resistance removal sessions, right? And over time, everybody is thinking differently about what's possible for them.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I personally going back to like groups of people who, right, who work together, who already have a relationship, who already have dynamics that have been in place. I mean, I just love the idea of like getting those people into a room together, guiding them through a really easy tool or like a really easy process where like, if we look at, (laughs) I'm going to laugh at myself because I hardly ever use the word or the the phrase limiting beliefs. But Uh if we look at like, like the experiences that people are having, but are not saying, like Uh if we could just clear those, like boom, 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 like one right after the other. Easy button. You know, hit the easy button. I mean, yeah, it's, I think it's pretty obvious that those dynamics would shift pretty powerfully. If five people who already work together, who have like rejection sensitivity stuff or two out of five of those people have that. And to whatever degree, it's just like a fear that's there for the other, you know, three or four or however Um, people just clearing that up. Like it's just, you know, rejection, not having as heavy as a charge or being told no, or having to say no. It's like, if those things just don't have the personal charge In the body or the mind that they once did, I mean, yeah, that's a group of people who will very likely discover a safety in being honest with each other to a degree that they hadn't been able to through no fault of their own. I mean, yeah, like... Anybody want to hire me to do that? Like, I'm down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? That's it's-
1: something I can do. Even though I don't have group like experience with that, that is something I can replicate very easily just as an example. But
0: but, but yeah. what I'm imagining is like even mm-hmm. if you're working with people one-on-one because that's kind of the yeah. heart of the work that you do, right? Even if you're working with these people one-on-one and even if we're all just loosely connected in fa- on Facebook together – Yeah. Once you know what's possible with one thing, right? Once you've had that first experience, whether it's sugar, you know, I got my first experiences with hypnosis in my hypnosis certification training. Well, not my first first, but most of my experiences with hypnosis early on were in my training because it was an eight day, six hours a day training. Um, Wow. Yeah. We did a lot of practicing on each other. And, but most people are getting this like first experience, this experience of like, oh, I started this 90-minute session craving sugar. Now I don't. Oh, I started this 90-minute session resisting writing emails. Now I don't, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Now we know, like you have a lived experience of how your brain can be different. And when you Mm -hmm. have a bunch of people where you don't have to explain it, because when I first got involved with hypnosis, I would tell people, listen, I can just make that easy for you. You want me to do that? And they'd be like, no.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: sure. (laughs) no, And And they'd be like, "Uh, no, 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 you can't be in my brain at that level. I was like, okay, like I absolutely wouldn't ever work on someone without consent, but but also Mm -hmm. it astonished me that people didn't want it. But once you've had that one experience, that one open door, then it's like you move in a circle of people who all understand that that's possible. Yeah. And everybody understands (laughs) that that tool is available. It's like you've suddenly given somebody, their first experience of a pry bar. Mm-hmm. And before that, they were just prying away at the edges of boards with their fingertips.
1: <laughs> Oof. Yeah, exactly.
0: And then they're like, oh my God, pry bars exist. I could use the pry bar on this. I could use the pry bar on that. And it's not always going to be a perfect tool, but 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 it opens this sense of possibility. It opens the sense of collective, oh, let's see if we can fix this problem with that. Oh, I wonder if there's a related tool, right? And this is where your the mm-hmm. depth of your work comes in. I wonder if, you know, maybe it's not exactly the same tool you used for for quit sugar, but maybe it's it's a related tool. Maybe I need to go deeper into this unshaming work. Maybe what would it feel like if I just wasn't ashamed of of who I am and how I am in the world? Like, Mm -hmm. overall, I wonder how many sessions it would take to get there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wonder how many sessions it would take so that I wasn't constantly running into this very subtle, you know, suddenly I'm walking through clam flats and mud up to my hips instead of walking across a mode field.
1: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'd be so – I don't know how it's – rippling out just yet. I mean, I, I for sure want to hear those stories. Dang. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm into <laughs> it. I don't know the answer exactly. I don't know how it's rippling out, but I am certainly interested like to know now that.
0: You're, <laughs> for, you're, starting, you know. you're starting to interview your clients, right? The ones who've already been. <clears throat> yes. So that's yeah, and I you hadn't, to ask those questions.
1: I know, and I don't know that I would have thought to have asked that. So, wow, major, massive thank you for uh, for just handing that to me. <laughs> That's really delightful <laughs> and lovely of you.
0: I mean, it's something that that I'm fascinated by, the, the ways that even individual mm-hmm. work like this hypnosis work can – can allow us to open the doors to really transform our society in ways that we're we're obviously encountering subconscious resistance with things like anti-racism work. We're obviously encountering subconscious resistance. When you say to somebody, hey, why isn't there a ramp to the dais at this event? And the person's like, uh, we just don't have ramps for that. And it's like, what do you mean you don't have ramps? You have plywood, you have two by fours. Why is there not a ramp? Exactly. Why didn't you anticipate that somebody might need a ramp to reach the stage? And you know, this happens all the time where they've invited a presenter who uses a chair, uses some other kind of mobility aid, and mm-hmm. and folks can't actually get to the podium, or the podium is like, you know, four feet too tall for them and nobody has thought to make any accommodation for that. And that's when they know they have somebody coming. <laughs> I
1: mean, it's just and, wild. Yeah. And yet it happens all the time. Yeah. But
0: what if what, but you know that the people running these events don't want to in, like it they're not waking up in the morning and being like, "I know, let's create ability barriers. that's not what they're doing like <laughs> right. that's not how they work and no. and
1: yeah, exactly in the mm-hmm. moment
0: they're caught out, they're ashamed, they're frustrated, they're usually overwhelmed because they're running an event, and the event's happening right now, and they don't know how to solve that problem right now, but like what if what if we could just, yeah?" Uh, What what can we do? Like I have some ideas for work that I want to launch that that uses these same kinds of tools to to dispel that kind of resistance.
1: Mm, Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think. I mean, I can't think of a better use of these tools than some than than the kind of change like what you're describing. That's an effect that I'm definitely interested in causing. And yeah, it's interesting, like even the unshaming work, like I I notice that there's something in me that, I'm not saying I do this perfectly, but I would say that mindset of like accommodating and being interested in the person's experience, like my client's experience, for example, I would say that's way more there through all of these tools than like the first coaching, you know, certification I ever got way back in the day. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? The mindset of just being interested in that for somebody else, like on their behalf and being not just willing to accommodate but like looking for like what's the need and anticipating that before they even have to ask me, for example. Mm-hmm. That's on my mind very naturally in a way that it wouldn't have been just like what you're describing, like the person who's just doing their best to like fulfill the role of putting on the event in the best way that they've known how up up until this point. Like we want that expansive possibility to be light and easy on their system Mm -hmm. so that they can have all of the strategy and all of the creativity that's in them available to them to meet like the needs. And Think of accommodations before accommodations need to be met in the moment. Absolutely. I'm into it.
0: Yeah. And like, I I can imagine things that are just like nimbleness sessions that like reduce the stress of changing, Mm -hmm. of pivoting.
1: Yes, exactly. That's part of why people are able to do something like quit sugar in one freaking session. Right. If you had told me that it was possible in six sessions a year ago, I would have been like, no way.
0: <laughs> I have to say, I don't I don't actually need a quit sugar session, but I am super curious about what that experience is like. I kind of want to come up with something that mm-hmm. isn't sugar but that would follow the same model just so that I sure. can – like know what it's like because for me, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm really attracted to like the weird mushy feeling of your brain when it's going through a change. Like I really like that, oh, and yeah. I know that a lot of people sure. don't. <laughs> I've met fun. people who didn't I was like, "What? What? You don't like that feeling? That's weird." Okay, <laughs> um, yeah, but a lot of people don't like that feeling. They it makes them feel slightly almost nauseous. But I I find it delightful. I'm like, I get really curious and I get really open. And I think that's probably part of my own internal novelty drive. Like I like new stuff. That's a new feeling. Let's see what that's like.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. So like in terms of I mean, it is a really fun experience. It's fun. <laughs> like, I always ask people, like, are you ready to have some fun today? And I mean, yeah, mm. of course, it's it's fun to give them that suggestion, but it also happens to be true. I was talking with somebody who had like a whole day of Zoom calls booked and I said, I guarantee you, you this will be the most fun Zoom call that you get on <laughs> all day. <laughs> and it's it really is a fun process. It's transformative. It's deep. And we go to that sacred place for sure, but it's also really playful. And there's Mm -hmm. lots of humor, even when we're met with like really deep grief or even dare I say deep trauma. I'm not saying I can heal your trauma. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that like I can carry you to shore and... (laughs) and and do it in a way that you may even laugh a little bit by the time we get there and it will not be like a dismissive like oh have a sense of humor like you know like mm-hmm. like fist bump to the shoulder like that's not what i'm saying <laughs> i mean like in a really <laughs> playful you know genuinely fun, very seen and held kind of way for lack of a better description.
0: <laughs> and I will vouch for your ability to do that kind of nourishing seen and held and like to to kind of make it feel like everything's okay. Like it's going to be okay. Whatever we do here, it's going to be okay. And that's yeah. really important too. Like creating that sense of safety is really important. As we all know, brains are much more resistant when they don't feel safe. Yeah, so, for sure. We are a little over time, but I am not sorry at all. Okay. I I have one more question, which is, what are you working on right now? Like, what's your what's your current like go to thing you're doing right now?
1: Oh my gosh! Well, in terms of like actual like a goal, I, a project, my oh I'm oh god. First of all, I'm like working on a lot of things <laughs> that are really fun, <laughs> and I'm enjoying. I'm I mean, being the person that I am and the type. Like the way that I do working on projects is a little interesting and kind of wild and chaotic, but um, such as my neurodivergent brain. So a Facebook group is coming, a fun podcast is coming, and other than that, I am just like really having a, a good time refining and bettering like the stuff that I'm already doing. Mm-hmm that's, yeah, those are my things.
0: Awesome. So it sounds to me, it sounds Mm -hmm. you are actually trying to formalize the community that I'm watching form that I said I was watching.
1: Yeah. And this is something that I would, that would be really good for me to do work on because ah, uh, community, like my experience of community, that is like my mm. deepest trauma. Like, oh my God, like I can, like I, and I've explored this in an unshaming way. I, I definitely like get me in a room or a uh, a circle, even like just a social situation of like five or more people. And I start to feel like, woof, like <laughs> yeah. I start to have certain feelings and experiences, which I'm, you know, It's like, I've got my own tools and that's great, but I'm also like, it's like even a massage therapist can't give themselves a full body massage, like, and it's Mm -hmm. not going to land the same way, you know? Like, yeah, I can like take my left hand to my right shoulder and like, et cetera. But anyway, but yeah, that's exactly, that's really it. I think I'm really like kind of dreaming up like, well, what does a community like this with these tools and... Like, what does this even look like? What can people expect from me as I wouldn't say a fearless leader, but <laughs> somebody mm-hmm. who's obviously creating the space? Yeah, so those are questions that are on my mind, and you're exactly right.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I'm I'm super excited to see how that goes, and we should totally talk about about the ways that the things that I know might be helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah, for sure. I spent most of my career in. Like my, my postgraduate school career is all about how communities work and how do we make them work better. So mm, Beautiful.
1: Yeah.
0: Anyway, so we can have that conversation afterwards. But meanwhile, thank sure. you, thank you, thank you. This has been fantastic. I've had a lot of fun. I hope you've had a lot of fun. Oh, um,
1: absolutely.
0: And For sure. Tell, tell folks again, if they want to work with you one-on-one, if they want to find you on social media, where should they look?
1: Sure. Facebook is really good. Just type in Sarah Rhiannon and you'll find me. I've got links like right there. I've got a pinned post with the link because the link is an acuity scheduling like link. So I won't drop that here, but you can find me on Instagram at Quit Sugar Coach. All the links are there as well. And I'm actually on TikTok as well as Quit Sugar Coach. So that's where you can come get to know me and hang out with me.
0: Fantastic. Thank you again. You have been absolutely wonderful. And oh, yay, I love thank it. you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. So good.
0: All right. Take care. This has been Power Pivot, the podcast. I'm your host, Leela Sinha. Thank you for listening. I offer gratitude for the earth and sky and the support and care of many who cross my path. Our post-production assistance is provided by William Jameson, and you can find him at jamesonav.net. You can find more of me and my work, including leadership consulting and keynotes, at intensiveinstitute.com.